0: It's said that your real life begins where your comfort zone ends. Well, it's about to get real as we have radically authentic conversations to help you thrive in your personal and professional life while navigating the twists and turns of being human. Buckle up, because this might get uncomfortable. Starts right now with Whitney Lordson. I started listening to a new audio book yesterday called Think Again that has had some really remarkable points on the way that we think. And one thing that really resonated with me is that it's not only okay to be wrong, but it might be beneficial for us to be wrong. And that resonated because I have a fear of being wrong. And not in the sense where I try to prove that I'm right all the time. At least I'm not conscious of doing that. It's that I usually won't do something unless I feel really confident about it. And if I need to do it dis- despite feeling insecure, I will always indicate that I feel insecure. And this is actually an example. But I think that book gave me the courage to and the freedom the permission to be wrong i suppose because there's it's not as bad as i believe i was conditioned to believe it is and the one of the points that i'm taking from the book is that if we don't give ourselves permission to be wrong and to shift and change then we don't really evolve and grow and and we're not as open minded as we think i think it's very constraining and this whole idea of perfectionism comes up a lot and perhaps that's my experience as a perfectionist. This also came up for me as I've been learning more about what it means to be anti-racist and about a year ago actually in in June 2020 when I first started being very committed to that journey, I was afraid of saying the wrong thing as many white people were. You know, those of us who wanted to be allies, called ourselves allies, felt awkward because this fear of saying it wrong. And we've talked about on the show cancel culture can make it scary. And reading this book makes me feel stronger about cancel culture, in that I think it's a really slippery slope and challenging thing because we want to hold people accountable. But if we instill this fear of saying and doing the wrong thing in people, then Do they lose the courage to try and do we lose that opportunity to be wrong and the growth within that? And I think it's also a lot in our ego to think that it's possible to live life without being wrong at some point. So anyways, I just started reading it or listening to it. I'm probably going to read the written version of it so I can better understand it. But that ties into the podcast in a lot of ways because... I think it's important that we state, Jason, if it's not already clear, that this is a big exploration and we're not here to be right. (laughs) We're not here to be gurus, as we we talked about in one one episode that you and I did towards the beginning of the show that really sat with both of us, like had a big impact on each of us, was that guru episode. So if you, the listener, have not listened to that, we will link to that in our show notes for this episode at wellevator.com w-e-l-l-e-v-a-t-r.com. If you don't want to go to the show notes, just type in, this might get uncomfortable, guru, and you'll probably find it pretty easily. (laughs) And that is something that I actually was complimented on by a friend, Jason. I, I hadn't mentioned this to you, but one of our mutual friends said that they liked that we didn't come across as having all the answers and didn't have an ego about us and and I that felt good to me that ironically made my ego feel good <laughs> because i get turned off when people seem like they have all the answers and actually if i've if i've noticed my tendencies when it comes for me consuming content i lean towards people that are vulnerable with a little bit of confidence and courage but not leading from a place of being know-it-alls and like, I'm better than you and, and just kind of this like dominating energy. I don't really like content these days that feels too structured and edited. I like that content that feels like an exploration and a curiosity and like, let's learn together. That feels more open and free, and it feels like more in the flow. It depends also who's sharing the information. I'm real, I'm very sensitive to the energy around it. And one of the reasons I bring this up today is because a subject matter that I feel insecure about talking about, but also I feel like is important to share, is my exploration of ADHD and how I've been wondering recently if I have undiagnosed ADHD. And I I felt a little nervous sharing this. I actually recorded a video for my Whitney Lauritsen YouTube channel a few weeks ago, maybe a little bit more, somewhere between a few weeks and a month. And I never posted it because I thought, oh, what if I don't have ADHD? Are people going to be offended that I'm wondering? You know, And I want to start by saying that I try to be very respectful when it comes to anything mental health related because I don't ever want it to seem like I'm taking it so lightly. I think it's when it comes to conscious languaging, using terms like, I have anxiety, I have depression, or I'm depressed. Like those words get thrown around so much, but some people have clinical depression. So if we kind of associate depression with or mix it up, I wonder if the people that are clinically depressed feel like it's minimized, almost like it's cultural appropriation, if that makes sense, in that. We're taking something from someone else and making it ours, even if it's different from their experience. Like we're making light maybe light in a way. So we have to be mindful. And in that sense, it can minimize somebody else's experience, right? So it's like, oh, if, if everybody's depressed, then do the clinically depressed people, are they not taking us it seriously? It's kind of like when you share something with someone and they go, oh, I can totally relate. But maybe, you know, as a fact that they haven't had that experience, like extreme example would be I'm upset because my dad died. My dad's still alive. But like I'm just saying, like if somebody said that to me, I can't completely relate. (laughs) You know, I'm not going to be like, oh, I understand. Like even that phrase I understand, I I try to be mindful with because I can't understand what it's like to lose my dad until I lose my dad. So I actually I think I've said this before on the show, like I want to learn more Language for those discussions to validate other people, and also try to take myself out of it. I sometimes inadvertently will, and many people do have. I have a tendency to like try to show that I relate or can understand what somebody is going through because I've I've been unconsciously trained to do that. I think that's like how our society tends to try to support somebody through grief is like letting them know that you have compassion because you feel like you can understand. But over time, I've started to feel like that's not the best approach. (laughs) Like sometimes we truly can't understand what someone's going through and they don't need us to understand. They just need us to listen or be there for them or show compassion for them. So my point being the conscious language side of this, I am treading very lightly. And I want to say that up front because Jason, I know that you started to have a question mark in your head, the more that I've explored ADHD out loud, you said the other day, like, huh, I, I wonder if I have it, you as, you being Jason. And then I started to look at ADHD through the lens of like, what if other people in my life have undiagnosed ADHD? And then, then that other question came up is like, what if A, a lot of people have it? Or B, what if like the symptoms of ADHD are... Like, what if a lot of people have a symptom but don't necessarily have it? And it's just been this interesting exploration, really, for me. And I'm not going to self-diagnose myself. I am exploring it so that I'm prepared with some questions so I can ask a doctor. I have a doctor's appointment coming up in a few weeks. And I want to begin this journey by asking my doctor, like, hey, if I want to try to get if I want to find out if I have it, where do I go? Because I don't know where to begin. And I think it's something that I'm feeling more confident talking about out loud, Jason, this exploration, because I wonder how many people are undiagnosed with it. I didn't recognize how common adult diagnosis of ADHD was until recently. And now I know a number of people who didn't Went so much of their life without even realizing it. And I'm grateful for the people that speak publicly about ADHD, especially those who have it, because that's how I've learned. And it's mainly been on TikTok. And (laughs) coming back to like one of the reasons I spend so much time on TikTok is I really appreciate people who talk about things that I don't see addressed as publicly and openly and honestly as on TikTok. And that's why I'm talking about it because even if I don't have it it's an important thing to explore if you have symptoms so I thought what we could do today is go through some of the symptoms of it and some of the you know neurodivergent elements which is a term I didn't know until recently we did an episode about what it means to be neurodivergent recently and even when we did that episode Jason I didn't think I didn't suspect that I had ADHD. And that is another interesting thing like I didn't I don't know if that's a newer term, neurodivergent versus neurotypical. It's really new to me and it's like how many things are out there in this world that could be helpful to our mental health that we don't even have exposure to. And I think that's something I'm very committed to with this show is just talking about things. So that the listener feels comfortable and aware so that they can explore it and discuss it themselves.
1: To back up what you said about us not claiming to or being clinical psychotherapists, medical doctors, psychiatrists, just to reinforce what you said on a medical scientific level, we don't have any of those certifications or degrees. We are exploring all of this often in real time trying to unpack not only the ramifications for our own individual health, Whitney and myself, but the larger ramifications for society and culture and humanity. As an offshoot about the guru episode, if you do do a Google search, there's also a companion blog post that last time I checked was one of our, if not the most read blog post on our website, wellevator.com. It's be your own damn guru. It's one of the blog posts I'm most proud of. And if you want to read a companion post to the episode, that is out there on our website as well. And on that topic, Whitney, we recently got an email a few days ago for our last newsletter. And on our website, you can subscribe to our newsletter. We send out newsletters every single Friday with new blog posts, new podcast episodes, including our brand new private podcast, This Hits the Spot, which is all about our favorite products and supplements, services, things we're excited about. All that being said, we received a a reply to the newsletter because we talked about how this month, as of the time we're recording in June, is National PTSD Awareness Month. And I'm no means an expert on PTSD or the nuances. And this listener was very forthright. And I appreciated her willingness to say, hey, this really doesn't cover the whole spectrum of PTSD. For instance, she was saying... She has something called C PTSD, which I had never heard of, which apparently stands for chronic PTSD, in the sense that this is a form of PTSD that has a sense of embedded trauma that doesn't resolve as easily as other forms of PTSD. I had never heard of C PTSD. So, all of this is to say, you know, we're always very, very open to receiving new information, new perspectives. We're here learning along with you because. We sure as shit don't have all the answers. We're nowhere even close to having all the answers. So shout out to our reader and our listener who sent us that email to educate us because I didn't even know C chronic PTSD was even a thing. So thank you for that. You know, the, the other thing, Whitney, too, that I wanted to just briefly touch on, you talked about self-diagnosis. There's a huge rampant amount of distrust with science and medicine right now in the quote wellness community, the wellness influencer community, basically like science is bullshit. Western medicine is bullshit. You can diagnose yourself. I've seen that messaging very consistently. I personally find that especially in the framework of mental health, diagnosing oneself is potentially extremely dangerous. And here's why you could take the wrong medication you could take the wrong supplements, you could seek out a form of therapy that isn't actually tailored to what you are experiencing or suffering with. So this idea of self-diagnosis can be a very slippery slope and potentially dangerous. That being said, you talked about how people using terms like depression, trauma, anxiety very loosely can affect people who actually have been clinically diagnosed with those kind of things. I was diagnosed with clinical depression back in 2014. I have been dancing with it, wrestling with it, struggling with it, fighting it for seven years now, right? And I remember when I got diagnosed and I was talking about it on social media, there were people kind of saying what you were saying, Whitney, of like, oh, me too, me too, me too. And one person I remember was like, oh, it sounds like you have situational depression, not clinical depression. And I was like, thank you, doctor, for weighing in on that. You know, so so people have really interesting opinions when you start to speak publicly about something you've been clinically diagnosed with. Okay, by not only my general practitioner but also my psychotherapist, they're like, "You have clinical depression." I don't know that it per se, Whitney, diminishes my experience or how my experience is perceived. But what I think it has done is, I've seen people using like the word trauma in relation to traffic. Like, oh God, I was in I was in traffic for like three hours and I'm so traumatized by it. I'm like, that's not fucking trauma. With all due respect, you being stuck in traffic for three hours, unless of course, okay, not to diminish it, maybe you've been in an auto accident in the past and this re-triggered something. Like, I, I don't want to make a blanket statement saying it's all bullshit, but with influencer culture, using words like depression, trauma, suicidal ideation- I observe them being used very flippantly in many cases, not all cases. I say all of this because I want people to be very mindful of their language. I'm glad you brought that up, Whitney, because talking about being depressed, talking about being suicidal, talking about anxiety, PTSD, ADHD, without really knowing what's going on with your body and your psychology, it's kind of dangerous and a little bit irresponsible to be using those terminologies. I really feel like it's irresponsible to do that.
0: And I don't think most people mean to be irresponsible. I think a lot of people mean the best and they're trying to connect, trying to relate. That's why I'm also mindful about how I'm talking about my ADHD exploration because I don't want to take away and be like, hey, me too. What I can say me too to is that I can relate to some of the Symptoms, but I'm not going to assume that because I have some of the symptoms of ADHD that I actually have it. Because what I don't know yet, because I haven't worked with a professional, are those separate? Like, are those, it's kind of like, is it a coincidence, right? Similar to how you can feel anxious, but not actually have an anxiety disorder. I'm also very mindful when I use the term eating disorder. I prefer disordered eating because I don't think they're the same thing, they imply something very similar. To some people, they might be the same thing. But to me, I was never diagnosed with an eating disorder. And there were elements of the way that I treated myself that are not fully in align with the eating disorder that I was most similar to. So I don't feel like I have the full ability or, or permission or to align myself with something that I take very very seriously. I may have said eating disorder in the past, but I've since changed the way that I spoke about I speak about it. It's really up to interpretation, of course. Some people don't mind if you use the term eating disorder, but some people do. To to your point Jason, that message that we got to our newsletter, I was a little taken aback by it at first, but it actually reminded me of a situation that happened in the news a few days ago. This recently, as the time that we're recording this in, in mid-June, the movie In the Heights came out, and I haven't seen it yet. I would like to, but one response that I've been aware very aware of is how some people feel like not enough people of color were represented, specifically dark color, and how... Some people have spoken out about that to the director, the producer, or Lin-Manuel and there's been a, a little bit of pushback from people involved or there was it in the beginning. I think it is shifting now. And there's been a conversation around this of, of like, what is enough Id- diversity? And one comment that came out. A few days ago, again, in mid-June 2021, was Rita Moreno, who is a Puerto Rican actress. She has been praised for a lot of her work. And she spoke out about that and at first was saying, like, hey, like this is isn't this enough for you? Like almost as if she was saying, How dare you complain about lack of diversity when there is diversity and like we should be focused on the progress that we're making, not what we haven't achieved yet. And I think there's something to be said about that. But first of all, I'm a white woman, and it's not my place to comment on this. So let me be clear that I'm simply observing and bringing this up because she eventually apologized for saying that. And I think part of the reason that she apologized is she realized she can only speak from her experience as a fairly light-skinned woman, right? So she, how can she speak for someone who's dark-skinned and upset that they're not being represented? And I think that ties into this as well, is that we can only speak from our experience. And I don't believe that it's fair to comment on somebody or, or invalidate somebody else's experience that we literally can't relate to. And that's something I've learned a lot over the past years. It's it's really just not my place. So with all of that said, I wanted to speak more about my current experience. And one element of this, Jason, that I'm really reflecting on is, let's say that I am neurodivergent. (laughs) Which, first of all, I'm really wondering, how does anyone truly define themselves as neurotypical because lately I feel like all I hear of is neurodivergent people and so I'm like I actually want to know the more of the definition of what it means to be neurotypical versus neurodivergent because it feels like a lot of people are struggling with their mental health and it seems that a high percentage of that is people feeling like they don't fit in and they can't meet the standards that were set for them or the expectations. And my experience and the experience that I have observed from others is people trying to fit themselves in a box that they don't fit in. And when they don't fit in it, they get frustrated and often anxious or depressed or something on that spectrum. It's like life wants me to be something that I'm not. We see this with gender. We see this with sexuality. We see this with anxiety, depression, on and on and on. Like all these issues are coming to the surface. The word typical brings up some questions for me. And I'm sure there's a medical standard for what it means to be neurotypical. But I also don't necessarily take that as factual because psychology is constantly developing. And a lot of the standards that doctors use to diagnose somebody are old and often outdated or based in like traditions. I mean, medicine itself and science are constantly evolving. So it's a slippery slope. And this is also like part of my curiosity with this journey in pursuing an examination around my my mental state is not going to I don't know if I'll trust whatever result I get, to be honest. It could change in five years and they could suddenly be like, oh, yeah, you do qualify as having ADHD. You know what I mean? Like the definitions could evolve. It also makes me wonder about my childhood because the more I've examined my experiences and my, quote, symptoms, I think, wow, I've had this all my life and how come nobody caught it. And again, this is why people get diagnosed with ADHD later in life is because they were never tested as kids. And why is that? Did your parents not catch it, your teachers, your doctors, and or was the diagnosis very different when I was a little kid versus the way it is today? And that's an important thing to consider. Now, I'm not attached to putting a label on how my brain works. But what feels important to me right now is to understand the way that I work so that I feel like I can interact with other people with more confidence. And part of what led me down this path was seeing a TikTok post about executive dysfunction. I didn't know what that term meant. In fact, I took a screenshot of it. I think this was the first time It feels like I must have seen something earlier, but maybe it's only been a few weeks. The screenshot is from June 4th. I want to, I need to go back a little bit further in my catalog, but I definitely saw something on June 4th. And I feel like this was it. And it was a video of a person with ADHD cleaning the house. And then they used the phrase couch lock from anxiety slash executive dysfunction. And I'm fairly certain that was the video I saw where I was like, wait a second, what is that? And I went and looked it up. So I could actually double check this from my organizational skills. Since I do use Google currently, one of the benefits of it tracking you is you can see all your search history. I thought I was going to immediately pull up some search results, but nothing came up. I know I searched for it. I know I found some articles about this executive dysfunction, but maybe they've cleared somehow. Darn. I was hoping that I would be able to pinpoint it. But I saw this video and I went and I looked up what executive dysfunction was. And it was like, bingo. I have never heard this term Previous to this and executive dysfunction describes the range of cognitive behavioral and emotional difficulties, which often occur as a result of another disorder or traumatic brain injury. Individuals with executive dysfunction struggle with planning, problem-solving, organization, and time management. This is the definition from AttitudeMag.com. That was just at the top of the Google search. So don't take that as the full, all-encompassing definition. I also pulled up an article on Manhattan Psychology Group that describes it as, oh, here's executive functioning disorder, skills where there may be deficit. Okay. So people with executive functioning disorder exhibit a wide variety of difficulties with everyday tasks, such as not being able to manage time well, difficulty meeting deadlines or goals, and determining the amount of time that is passed or is necessary to complete a task, difficulty organizing and planning, trouble paying attention, trouble switching focus, not being able to remember details, misplacing and losing possessions, difficulty Delaying re- response or withholding a response, bingo. Like just reading that sentence, I'm like, holy shit, this is why I need to look into this further. Now, a lot of things on this list seem very common, and not everything on this list is something I struggle with. For instance, most people that know me believe me to be very organized and very good at planning, and those are skills of mine. However, Jason, I've often wondered. Did I teach myself those skills because I was trying to compensate for my challenges with the other things? How much of who I am today is the result of me trying to cope with something I've been struggling with my whole life that nobody else seemed to be able to help me with? Because I find relief and comfort in planning and organizing When I can't plan and I don't organize, I feel extreme distress. I feel so much anxiety. And that's why, you know, I don't think I've ever looked into ADHD because I thought, all right, like I I seem to be able to pay attention and to focus. I'm pretty good. I have a good memory. Like, you know, you see some of these things like, but when you get into the nuances of this stuff, that's where I start to wonder. And my difficulty in responding to people is a big red flag, and one of the top things that I'm curious about. Like, I don't, I thought all these years, Jason, once I noticed that about myself, which was probably about 10 years ago, I figured that was just purely a weakness of mine. And like, I almost had this, it's hard to verbalize or put into words. Like, I thought it was something that was like, simultaneously wrong with me, but something's fixable. Like I'm really struggling with this, but like it's just temporary. Or this is why it's hard to put into words because I feel like other people or I've like internalized what I believe other people are thinking, Jason, to be very specific. Most people, especially you, know that I'm very slow to respond to emails. Emails have been a huge challenge for me for years, But enough people seem to struggle with emails that I thought, okay, this is A, common. But B, I thought it was like a temporary problem I was having, Jason. Like, I'll get over it. You know, or I'm just being lazy. It was like, that's why I'm saying like, I can't even quite put the words to it. It's like, I just thought it was something I could fix or. I don't know if that makes sense, but like it just wasn't fixed yet. But I've noticed just reflecting that it's at a certain point if something's not fixing itself, it's probably not going to fix itself if that makes sense. Like at a certain point of experiencing something, maybe it's just the way that you are. And I've internalized it so much as a shame, a point of shame. Like I feel deep shame when I don't reply to emails. And then on top of that shame, I get anxiety because I feel so much shame and I get caught up in this cycle. And in my brain, I'm always thinking, but one day I'll catch up. One day I'll remove the shame. One day the anxiety will be gone. If only I do this. Like And this is part of where the executive function comes in. And I've noticed a lot of people expressing with ADHD that they get these windows, these bursts. I think I might, I can't remember if I sent you this video, Jason. I feel like I saw this last night, someone else articulating this, but like a lot of people with ADHD, like get these brief periods of time where they can focus. And it's like, as soon as you feel that you have to spring into action and do something with it and i feel like i'm always waiting for that window and that's my hope i'm like okay here's the window i have the energy my brain's focused i'm going to get this stuff done and i get something done and then it's like bam the executive dysfunction comes back and i it's like other people describe it as like paralysis where i feel like i shut down but because i've been caught in the cycle of self blame I just put it on myself all the time, and I think something, you know, it's just again, I don't even know have the word for it. I don't know if it makes sense to you, Jason, at all.
1: Well, it's it's tough because I think the reason that it's difficult to self-diagnose something like this, to your point, is is when you read how this affects, at least on the list and the symptoms and and the actions or lack thereof that you just mentioned. It's like even I could say, oh, I, I definitely identify with some of that to a degree. It's difficult, though, right? Because it could be, you know, I wonder this for myself. Is it simply exhaustion sometimes where I can't sit down and focus on the inbox? Or for me, for me, it's like always dishes. You know, I cook, I make a meal, I get distracted by work, I get distracted by other people wanting things from life. You know what I mean? And then I look at the dishes and I'm like, I'm not doing this. They pile up higher. I'm not doing this pile up higher. And I wait until literally I have no clean dishes left. Right. But, you know, for me as a transposition, is that just exhaustion from life in general or is that executive dysfunction? And that shows up for me in my reticence to do dishes daily. It's hard to say.
0: It is hard to say. And again, we're just talking through this like my fear is that the listeners can be like, you should Don't even try to understand it. Go get diagnosed. It's not that simple, first of all. And I don't think there's anything wrong with exploring it. Like, so I'm glad that you're open to having this conversation with me, Jason. I just want to be very clear. Like, I'm reading about it so that I have some of the words to ask my doctor because I'm a little afraid that going in, if I don't articulate it, doctors are going to be like, oh, that's just common. Like, every, you know what I mean? Like, that's why it helps this is part of my preparation as a coping skill like i like to prepare my thoughts so because i haven't had the words to describe this and one thing that you just said jason that's actually in this article on manhattanpsychologygroup.com this to me kind of sounds like what you're describing and one reason i think you should talk to your doctor and see where you fall in the spectrum of all this while depression and anxiety do not have to occur with executive function disorder they are likely to present in conjunction with it. Adults may mistake EFD for laziness or a lack of intelligence. So to your point, oh, and this is the other thing. Furthermore, as academic demands begin to increase and children recognize that for some reason they can't keep up, this can lead to anxiety and low self-esteem. And like I get emotional reading things like that because – First of all, I know my sister struggled with this. And I I've suspected for many years that my sister has ADHD and we're so different that like, I just figured like, Oh, well she probably has other people have wondered that about her, but she's never pursued a diagnosis. It turns out ADHD is genetic. Right. And I was kind of like seeing that within my sister and just assuming I didn't have it. But now that I know that it's genetic, I wonder that maybe we both have it, but it shows up differently. And for me, one of the ways that showed up is exactly what you're describing, Jason, like the laziness factor. Like, I can't do this, but it must be because I'm lazy. I can't do this. I must be burnt out. That was the thought process I've had for, for like a year and a half. I remember distinctly in January 2020, before COVID started in the US, or because before we were globally aware of it, I should say. I felt so much executive dysfunction. And I just thought I was burnt out. I just thought I needed a break. And I've wondered throughout COVID, Jason, why don't I feel better after all of this time collectively of taking, quote, time off, doing things differently, not socializing, all these things that I haven't done. And I still feel the same way. I'm like, I don't think this is burnout. And I've... Labeled it as burnout, and that's another reason why I wanted to talk about this on the podcast is that I think a lot of people use and throw around the word burnout, but like, what if it's not burnout? What if you actually have something neurologically going on? A, B, my heart breaks for my younger self if I do find out that I have some disorder, right? ADHD, EFD, whatever, whatever it is. Or even just some major symptom of it, right? If I've gone my whole life feeling like I couldn't keep up, maybe that helps me better understand the anxiety and the low self esteem I've struggled with. And that's, there's like a a lot of therapeutic elements of this. In fact, Jason, again, as I've looked into this, part of me is afraid of getting diagnosed because one of the most common things that happens is you're prescribed medication. And I'm like, I don't really want to go on medication. Like I might try it because it's incredibly frustrating for me as somebody who really wants to function mentally in certain ways and has struggled with doing so. I might try medication so that I can function in the way that I would like to just to see what it's like, but I'd have to go down and better understand what the side effects are. The alternative, though, is cognitive behavioral therapy, and I'm thinking that there's got to be a lot of therapeutic elements of not only being diagnosed with something or better understanding your brain, but then therapeutically working through it because, for me, I want to heal that inner child that couldn't keep up in school, That would try so hard to get A's and usually got B pluses, and that never felt good enough. That was devastated when I didn't get into the college that I wanted to because I couldn't get my grades and my SAT scores up high enough. And I bet you there are so many adults and teenagers that carry around shame and anxiety and low self esteem because they couldn't keep up or they couldn't meet those standards and that criteria. And that's the other reason that, again, I want to share this journey because what if we have been beating ourselves up over something that we can't help?
1: It's a really kind of intense thought, isn't it? I mean, to think about making ourselves feel bad for so many years because we were underperforming or we were thinking we weren't good enough or not – matching the work ethic or the output or the level of enthusiasm or passion or or focus that we saw in our classmates, our work colleagues, the people in our industry. I mean I mean it has the potential to reframe a lot and it has the potential to present a whole nother series of choices of how to I suppose move forward in life and perhaps take different approaches. The thing that I land on though, right, is What's the ultimate intention? I was trying to formulate my thoughts here. Not just in understanding what may or may not be going on with us neurologically, what may or may not be a genetic predisposition, how we're learning to navigate the world if we do get a diagnosis, to your point, whether that's pharmaceuticals, CBT, different therapies. But it's like, do we want to be more productive? And if so, why? You know, I transpose this because I'm realizing that Over the years, my desire to, quote, be more productive, right, and match other people's energy and seeing, you know, how hard people were working, how hard they were hustling, how much they were, quote, accomplishing and all their success and feeling like I had to match or exceed that output and those successes. I guess my question is, as we understand ourselves more and potentially get a diagnosis for some kind of neurodivergent sort of framework with our lives. I guess I'm curious, Whitney, other than, you know, understanding yourself more, which is obviously an incredibly important thing, you know, is it to achieve some sort of effect for you of, oh, if I understand this better and and have a diagnosis and have a different set of therapies to be more productive, to engage with work differently? Like, I, I'm curious about the nuances for you specifically, like. Are there very specific things you want to address through this process? And if so, why do you want to address those things? It doesn't have to be productivity. That's just one that popped out at me. But I'm wondering, you know, is there a part of sort of not enoughness wrapped up in all of this? Does that make sense? The question I'm asking?
0: Absolutely. And I think it's a really great one. A huge part of it for me is that it's felt like something has been wrong with me. And I f- the shame is a big part of this. And I find myself apologizing or like I feel so much shame that I don't even apologize because I'm afraid that people don't understand and won't understand. So there's no point. I mean, the number of times that I've dropped, quote, dropped the ball on something, because of these traits and then felt so much shame that I didn't even articulate it like I can think of so many examples so many the times that I don't respond to text messages it's not just emails like I I struggle with communication in general and I feel like either my awareness has really heightened or it's or my executive dysfunction has gotten worse and it might be a universal thing this Going to the PTSD point, Jason, and again, I'm not trying to say that I have PTSD, but I think there is an element of trauma that many of us have experienced because of COVID that we will not fully understand. Just like 9-11 instilled a lot of trauma in the entire country and likely the world as well. Like, I think there's elements of trauma within me from 9-11 that like I probably don't fully understand. But like it was a very traumatic time, even though I wasn't in New York City. And I'm not going to get into 9-11 right now, but there are times when I reflect on how that's impacted me emotionally. And I think that we're going to see the same thing with COVID. Lots of people have died from COVID. Lots of people have suffered. You know, I don't even need to list off the effects, like COVID, the pandemic has impacted us as a fact. Even if you don't believe that COVID was real, it still impacted you because everybody has reacted to it in their own unique way. I mean, even I'll just bring up like somebody recently shamed me for getting the vaccine, Jason. And it was like, that's traumatic for me because shame in general is a very traumatic thing. I'm incredibly triggered by being shamed. Getting the vaccine in itself, I did t- partially to relieve me from a mental health standpoint because I experienced a lot of anxiety about COVID and around socializing. But then, on I realized after getting the vaccine that there is a level of shame that people will put on you for getting it because they have judgments around that. And like, the, so the mental health on COVID, everybody's experiencing it, I believe, on some level or not. There is a lot of trauma. And sometimes I'm like, oh, okay. well, everybody's feeling trauma and everybody's probably experiencing some executive dysfunction, as I've listed out. And I've met a lot of people who share a lot of those elements. Like when I was sharing about the disorder, those kind of sound like something somebody, you know, has experienced (laughs) like, you know, the ability to not manage your time well is a very, very common experience. So just because you can't manage your time well doesn't mean that you have it right. In terms of me figuring it out, though, Jason, to going back to your question, I do feel like it's therapeutic to better understand myself, first of all, so that I can articulate it. Because if I understand my brain and say, you know, Whitney, black and white, you're just not somebody that is very good at answering emails. I can take some of the shame away and I can confidently say that to somebody. And if I had a way to describe that to someone truly, like, I don't want to sound like I'm lazy. If I can articulate to someone professionally, hey, I cognitively struggle with responding to emails. It's not personal. If I can say that up front in business practices, like I have so much anxiety today on June 19th, the day we're recording this, I have more anxiety than I'm fully conscious of because I haven't responded to business emails. And I have people following up with me, which makes my anxiety even worse because I feel shame around it. I feel embarrassed. I feel weak. So to your point, Jason, it's not necessarily trying to be more productive. It's that I don't want to carry that unnecessary shame with me. I don't know for sure that a diagnosis would comfort me, you know, like, but I would like to learn some way and part of my exploration, my commitment to this, the listener is that I want to share what I learn about this. And if I can get more tools for communicating to others, I will absolutely share that because I guarantee I'm not the only one that feels shame when they don't reply to a text message, a phone call, an email. I would love that to me would make, I would feel so much relief if I had more phrases to use to explain myself That makes sense because the amount of friends that I feel like think that I don't like them because I haven't responded to their texts or I don't want to get together with them, I carry that anxiety around with me constantly. It's very often that I will not get together with people, I will delay it. I, you know, all of that stuff comes out of me feeling executive dysfunction symptoms because I just want to not do anything. Do you know what I mean? Does that answer your question?
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think the interesting thing too, we've talked about sort of how to navigate work and the workplace when you have a mental disorder. We've discussed this in previous episodes. And to your point, Whitney, you communicating to people potentially, depending on how this process goes for you of of seeing your doctor and potentially diagnosing some things. Of saying in a a work context, you know, I apologize, I didn't get back to you. You know, it's, it's cognitively challenging for me to respond to emails in a timely way. That also takes courage, right? Because I think that, I think we can make a sweeping generalization that in general, in the workplace, it's not really a societally acceptable thing to talk about mental health or disease or even people dying in your family. You know, it's like, oh yeah, you go to the funeral and mourn and come back in three days. You get three days off. I mean, it's... Our capitalist work industry is not structured to really be supportive of a people's health physically or mentally, or really honoring their human needs in many ways. I know that's a generalization. There are different corporations that are employing some really human centered practices, but for the most part, work is not designed to really support us physically or mentally. Yeah. Financially. Sure. You come up, you show up, we exchange work for hours for money. But the interesting thing about what you're sharing, Whitney, is I have been more forthright in certain work interactions to tell people, like, I mean, I'm, I'm dealing with it right now. Like, I'm sorry I'm behind on this project. I'm incredibly depressed. And I appreciate your patience and your understanding while I work through, you know, what I've agreed to do for you. And my thing is like, okay, could I risk losing money? Yes. Could I risk losing the project? Yes. I have a fuck ton of anxiety around it. Like when I have communicated that to people, there is a part of me that's like, they could just pull the plug completely and I'm gonna lose the money. I'm gonna lose the project. I might lose clout. It's nerve wracking for me in communicating those things. Yet, I feel like if I don't, then there's gonna be like, this judgment of, oh, you know, Jason's a slacker. He doesn't really care about this. We're never going to hire him again. So on the one hand, it's like, to me, it feels like it takes courage to communicate this, knowing that I will risk the person not understanding, but I'm willing to take that risk rather than having them think he's lazy. He's not committed. He doesn't give a shit. So, you know, but I still cringe every time I communicate those things, Whitney, because I don't know how it's going to be received. But on a higher level, I also want to communicate it because I want to normalize these kind of conversations of, I'm a human being who has a mental illness. I am clinically depressed. And if this person doesn't understand, then don't work with me again. I'll sacrifice the money. I'll sacrifice the reputation because I'm a human being. And my health comes first before money. My health comes first before success. Like with very few exceptions, I'm placing my health now, Whitney, above a lot in my life for the first time. So I'm excited and supportive of you in this exploration for you, in you not only understanding yourself more, but using that understanding and that framework to communicate in these ways and having the courage to say, fuck it. If people don't understand, they don't understand, but I have to be honest about what's going on in my life.
0: Yeah. And I'm experiencing the same thing this past week, the more I've been thinking about the executive dysfunction. Which, by the way, I will say something else I learned that women especially struggle with ADHD because of their hormones and their cycle. And I have been tracking my cycle for many years, but I've recently been trying to take more notes of my mood changes. And it's crazy how different I am emotionally right before I start menstruating. And crazy in the sense that, like, I'm taken aback by it, but like, That's pretty common for women to have mood swings and mood changes, PMS, all of that. But for ADHD women, that can be an extremely challenging time. I think it's called the luteal phase where that week before you start menstruating, executive dysfunction can be so high. And this week was that week for me. And I had major executive dysfunction. Meaning like I really had trouble functioning and I started thinking like, okay, similar to you, Jason, I didn't, I was quote slacking on projects and I, there's a couple people who are waiting for things from me and I'm terrified of telling them, hey I'm having some cognitive struggles like to your point the place that we're at right now is like they want to hire me and I've to send them a proposal and I haven't sent them a proposal and now I'm afraid that they think that I don't care or I'm not interested or I'm a slacker and I'm afraid that they're not going to want to work with me because of that but the truth is I really want to work with them I just struggle to send that email with the proposal and I'm wondering do I tell them that I'm struggling mentally because why would they want to hire me like who are they going to want to hire me if I can't send them an email (laughs) and the amount of opportunities I've let go for that reason where I could not get over this current hurdle but I'm very confident when I'm hired in the role that I am talking about right now where I do my consulting I'm incredibly confident about my abilities to coach but I'm terrified that when people know where my struggles are pre-coaching, they don't want to hire me. I've thought about this a lot over the years when I've talked very publicly about like shame and my you know struggles and insecurities, like especially on my Whitney Lauritsen YouTube channel. I'm like, great, like who's ever going to hire me as a coach because I do well-being coaching too. I'm like, why would they hire me knowing how much I struggle with with my mental health sometimes? Another thing I really wanted to bring up is an article I came across yesterday, and I can't remember what I Googled to find this, but it is one of the more fascinating articles I've read, Jason, and this is one that I sent to you, but I don't think you've read it yet. It's titled, When Adult ADD slash ADHD Goes Untreated. It was written by a doctor in 2013 and I will link to this in the show notes along with anything else we mention at WellEvator.com, W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. Click on the podcast section, find this episode or search for this episode and you'll you'll get a full transcript, you'll get the video version, you get... all sorts of things, including links at the very bottom of the post and within the post. We try to make it as easy as possible for you to get info. And this article is very eye-opening to me. I haven't cross-referenced it. I like to be transparent. It's on Psychology Today, which I find to be fairly reputable. And it's like... Oh, it's also... They review their post, by the way. So it's actually kind of cool. I've never clicked on this before, Jason, but they're in psychology today. You can click a button and it tells you about their editorial process, their standards and guidelines, their content labeling. It's it's pretty impressive. And I really appreciate that because as a theme of this particular episode, we try to be mindful not to state things that are untrue. If we have not, meaning we try to go through a process of transparency and that when we're sharing opinion, when we've done thorough research, as Jason mentioned, our certifications and lack thereof, all of these things, because we take mental health incredibly seriously. And it's really been a big gift running this podcast, Jason, because I feel like I've learned so much about mental health. This has been an education for me, even when we're not always basing it in scientific research, it's still enlightening and it puts us down this path. Anyways, so this article is like really great for what we've been exploring. And it begins with a case study and a quote. It says, doctor, I have been to four psychiatrists during the past 10 years and I've tried everything. They tell me I'm depressed or bipolar. The meds just make me feel worse. I was in therapy for six years and figured it was that I had a bad childhood, but I still feel lousy. Then the doctor and writer talks about this person, John. I don't know if that's the real name or just one for the article. John contacted me because I specialize in the diagnosis of ADHD and the treatment of ADHD in New York City. His financial firm that he worked at had sent this doctor similar people who are bright and brilliant and feel like they should be excelling but never seem to get their act together. A third of the patients they've referred ended up having adult ADHD and have never been diagnosed. In the opinion of, it seems like, is it him, or a different doctor, he references another doctor named Dr. Hollowell, ADHD is a misnomer, a bad term. This doctor sees ADHD as neither a disorder nor a deficit of attention. In his personal and professional experience, his, he has come to define ADHD as a trait, not a disability, which I think is an important distinction, right? Then it gets into whether or not ADHD is overdiagnosed. And this doctor says more often than not, ADHD is missed and the person is labeled with depression or bipolar disorder. Fascinating, right? Doctor says, when someone tells me they are depressed, but every treatment in the book, including medications, haven't worked, he starts wondering if something else is going on. And Jason, I don't know if that about you, but this makes me wonder about yourself, right? And I'll continue. Many times... Symptoms of ADHD can masquerade as other diagnosis. They often have mood swings and difficulty with mood regulation. This isn't a DSM IV criteria, which by the way, for those that don't have a background in psychology, that's like a book basically of how they make diagnosis as psychologists. He said it's not in that criteria, but if you've worked with hundreds of patients with ADHD, you know that ADHD causes mood swings. When someone with ADHD is sad or in a funk, they have a hard time shaking it. And when they are excited, they are really excited. This is one of the gifts and wonderful traits of people with ADHD. They are passionate people, passionate about life, and passionate about letting other people know about it. If one doesn't spend the time getting to know the person, they might think the person has bipolar disorder. And I bring this up because... Some people have have wondered if Jason has bipolar disorder.
1: 100%. Like people have literally said, I think you're bipolar and these people are not clinicians. So this gets really tricky, right? Because now we're getting into nuance because everything you're talking about under the framework I was always you know, under the impression of was that I could be bipolar because of the mood swings that's what I was told, like, for the chunk of my adult life that I've experienced depression, you might be bipolar because you have really high highs and you have really low lows. Like, that's that was almost, like, parroted to me over and over again. I've never heard that in relation to ADHD, ever. That is absolutely fascinating. And it's confounding, too, right? Because it, it, first of all, I haven't been diagnosed bipolar by either my therapist or my general practitioner, like, neither one of them, right? And looking at neurotransmitters and things like that. But the mood swings is something that I I have, I've had radical mood swings since I was a young child, young child. What you're describing is not a new thing for me. I remember being young and having the kind of personality that when I'm on fire about something, like you're going to be on fire too, because I'm so excited about it, right? But when I get low, I get really fucking low, like scarily low.
0: And that's why my eyebrow was raised upon reading this, because you said to me, after something else unrelated to this, I sent you, Jason, you're like, huh, I wonder, should I get tested for it, too? And I thought to myself, what makes him say that? And then when I came across this article, it was more clues. And again, I can't stress this enough. We're not trying to diagnose ourselves. We're bringing this up so that we can seek out this with a professional. Now, one question that comes up for me before I go back to that article, because there are other points that I want to bring up, is that I wonder sometimes, Jason, if it's possible to be undiagnosed, if it's possible to be misdiagnosed, (sighs) It's a little scary because what if you're misdiagnosed for having ADHD and then you go to someone else and they say, no, you don't have ADHD. You could technically bounce around through all these different doctors based on their opinions and their criteria. And it's that makes me a little bit nervous. Like, what if you can never get a true answer? And I'm prepared for that, to be honest, similar to like what you're describing and what this doctor is describing. And actually, to go back to that, he said... Many clinicians were taught that if someone presents with depression and ADHD, first treat the depression and then treat ADHD. But in his opinion, this is backward thinking. Very often, the patient feels depressed, frustrated, and Jason, I'm pointing at you, has lost interest in work and other activities. But this can be because he has experienced one failure after another has gone from one job to the next. In this doctor's experience, when you treat the ADHD, the person begins to acquire the ability to achieve their goals, improve relationships, meet deadlines, on and on, and they feel more competent, confident, and happy. Unfortunately, when patients are treated for depression and stay on medications and their symptoms aren't improving, they get worse. Without Getting to the root problem, he also says, gosh, I mean, I lo- just reading this it feels so insightful. He was taught during training to never, never, never take away someone's dopamine. Dopamine gives us a zest for life, motivation, and enables us to pay attention. It is the piece of the puzzle people with ADHD may be missing that inhibits and blocks them from reaching their potential. Guess what antidepressants and antipsychotics do? Through a feedback loop, these medications can decrease the function of dopamine in the frontal lobes and limbic system, which explains why some people hesitate to take drugs. And I know you've been reflecting on this yourself, Jason, and maybe for good reason. It also makes me wonder, when I took antidepressants very briefly back in college— that probably they didn't seem to do anything for me now granted maybe i just need a deeper therapy like talk to- you know i needed to find a specific type of therapy that works for me or was it that i was misdiagnosed and given antidepressants when i needed something else
1: yeah it's it's fascinating i mean all all of this is kind of turning I suppose a lot of the traditional diagnoses or the the system of diagnosing it's kind of flipping it on its head, right and you know to your point about SSRIs, which are selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, I mean we talked about dopamine, but most of the antidepressants out there work with serotonin rather than dopamine specifically and you know one of the concerning things that I have researched, this actually comes from Harvard medicine, and we can link to this in the show notes. I actually have the the link handy somewhere, but in, in Harvard's research around SSRIs, Whitney, they, they found that in a lot of cases, it can actually increase suicidal thinking. Now for someone who's already suicidal, like I am, okay, I, I deal with a lot of suicidal ideation, I don't want to be taking a drug that's going to increase the frequency and intensity of my suicidal thoughts than when that's what I'm trying to address, right? So to your point about, you know, experimenting with different things, This will probably be a different episode because on the other side of what I'm about to talk about, there's going to be some episodes, okay, but I've recently been talking to my GP and my therapist about coordinating alternative treatments that are not SSRIs and not antidepressants because they both agreed that that's not really the best option. The other thing I did not know about this really quickly, I was talking to my therapist, Gary. He said, the other reason that I'm reticent to go to an antidepressant for you, Jason, he said in his experience, and he's he's worked with many patients who are on antidepressants, he's noticed that they take on an, an average of two to three months to be fully functional. He said, where you're at right now with your depression, your suicidal ideation, I do not want to wait two to three months for you to have relief. He said, we don't have that luxury. And there's no guarantee they would even work. So what we're doing, and again, I'm, I'm kind of teasing a future episode, is I've started and FYI, what I'm about to say has been discussed with my doctor, who's an integrative medicine doctor, and my therapist. I started about four days ago microdosing psilocybin mushrooms, and I actually just got a text before we started recording this episode, Whitney, that my therapist and my MD talked, which I wanted them to do, and I'm going to go into a assisted MDMA therapy program, which means... I will be taking MDMA is the pharmacological name for ecstasy, but there's pharmaceutical grade ecstasy on the market now. And apparently what this does is it affects the neurotransmitters in your brain and also affects, I don't know exactly what part of the brain I need to research more. I'm not an expert on MDMA, but I'm trying the psilocybin microdosing and the assisted MDMA therapy before I consider a antidepressant so basically what i'm saying in my framework of how i'm handling my mental health issues right now an antidepressant is again in conjunction with my my medical team that's like the last resort and so what we want to do is try these other modalities now with this information we're talking about today whitney though i actually want to bring this up tuesday with my next appointment of like hey in seven years of working together we've never actually talked about adhd So this has been really timely as I'm approaching these new functional therapies to bring this to the table and say, like, could this be a possibility? So in real time, as again, I'm not diagnosing myself, but I think it's everything you're saying is giving me the confidence to bring this to my MD and my therapist and say, what about this? Because we've never actually discussed it. Not to take away from their expertise or their knowledge. It's just never been put on the table.
0: And, and this article I'm sharing might explain that. I mean, maybe therapists, psychologists are not trained to look or psychiatrists. I mean, again, in my experience, my very first time doing therapy was with a psychiatrist who is fantastic. That was in 2002. And, you know, by the way, James, I literally am thinking back to that date and how I said earlier how I haven't... F- fully sat down to pr- think about like the trauma of 9-11, like my time going into therapy was not that far after nine eleven. It was within a year. It's probably six to nine months. I mean, I've never even thought about how that could have impacted my mental health at that time. Cause like I was, I thought I was going through a breakdown and that, you know, I went to therapy or to the psychiatrist for two reasons. First, primarily, was because of my disordered eating. That's why I was referred to this psychiatrist. But after I worked through a lot of that, on the surface level at least, I started to dig into other things. And I went on antidepressants because I felt like I couldn't function. So I think that's the important element is like, what? <laughs> something else to put on the table. What if I was also experiencing a PTSD that was impact, you know, like this is the important, the connecting all of these dots and the impact of trauma, the impact of like learning disabilities, all of these things that we carry with us, that if they're not addressed properly can have deep impacts on how we progress in life. And, First of all, before I forget Jason, it came up in a conversation about ADHD that microdosing can help with that as well, be therapeutic for that. So, I'm curious about your journey, Jason, cuz it it might help with both of these potential challenges. And going back to that article, f- there are other things in here. I mean, this article is like almost written about you. <laughs> like this guy John, the case study said like this guy was popular in school. He was generous and creative. He was the life of the party, which is a lot how people describe you. Everyone thinks that you're exuberant and joyful. And yet, everyone was puzzled why he was never quite living up to his full capacity. He seemed to not see the big picture or to perform consistently, which is something that you've expressed, right? More often than you can imagine, adults with ADHD find themselves without a job and a plan. Losing a job can have many causes, especially in this touch-and-go economy. And this was 2013, but definitely applies now. Without being a plan, it's easily associated with ADHD because they're characterized by difficulty in visualizing the future along with the inability to put the pieces together to get there. ADHD people come to a full stop They have difficulty deciding what to do next, which is one of my big challenges. At a full stop, they lose all forward momentum. It seems as if they will never find a job because the full stop blocks forward motion. Paradoxically, an ADHD person may also feel barraged with a torrent of thoughts about where to turn, but each leads to a few weeks of submitting applications and then concluding that something else is more interesting or promising. Paralysis can set in and depression will follow.
1: Yeah. I mean, a lot of that is really resonant. My curiosity, right, is like, what? how do you even treat ADHD? Like, I know so little about this because I never, ever thought that I even remotely identified with it, hence never researched it. So, you know, my curiosity, though, is like, how does one treat it? Is it just drugs or are there other forms of therapy or experiencing that can address it? Like, does the article go into treatment?
0: This is the article that said that cognitive behavioral therapy can be really helpful for that. So that was promising to me. I mean, this article is pretty in depth. There's another section here that I really resonated with that you just aren't trying syndrome. And I'll come back around to your question, Jason, but I wanted to go through this before we get to the end and how it concludes because I haven't even gotten to that yet. It it says here, too, like people seem very intelligent and bright. They've done very well. No one would imagine that they would have ADHD. Often very organized and structured parents or schools can serve as the person's frontal lobes or breaks in early years. People with ADHD are great with structure, myself included. However, once the structure is gone, they have difficulty providing it for themselves. Very true for me. ADHD doesn't start as an adult. It starts during childhood. However, people with ADHD are often poor self-reporters and historians, and they believe that they have no trouble with attention or focus when in the reality they did, but the structure of their environment helped them to compensate me. Like in this whole idea of being a poor self-reporter, sometimes we don't even realize we're struggling because we're not keeping track of it, we're not thinking about it that way. It talks about how high intelligence can help people compensate with ADHD. And when they start to dig deeper into their history, they'll start to suspect this. Daydreaming could be a symptom of it. Being late can be a symptom of it. Having people around you that are very organized can help you move through it in ways that you're not fully aware of. Finished projects. I mean, there's so much in this article I'm trying to, like, (laughs) get through here. People with ADHD can have learning disabilities, but more often than not, they're very talented, gifted, and intelligent. When ADHD is recognized and appropriately treated, they can finally be free to express their talents and gifts to the world. Exercise is a huge treatment form, Jason. I'm getting into the treatment section now. Adderall, of course, can be recommended. I've heard that Adderall is really great, but I don't know that much about it, so I don't know what the side effects are, for example. Treatment for ADHD must be individualized as each person is unique. People are complex. Treatment isn't about writing a prescription and seeing the patient once a year. Treatment is about helping people develop a comprehensive strategy to move on with their lives and achieve full potential. First, the relationship between you as a therapist and the patient is paramount, whether you're prescribing medications or engaging in therapy or coaching. Second, people with ADHD have difficulty maintaining and focusing on relationships. And social connection is one of the primary pillars of helping someone improve and must be part of the treatment. Interesting. And the article ends with an update on the Sky John. Who started taking Adderall? He said for the first time in his life, he felt like he was out of the fog. He wasn't giddy or anxious. He finally felt okay. They had coaching for him where he would write down his goals. They addressed all these different areas of his life from work, community, spirituality, relationships, and personal growth. They did cognitive therapy together to continue to work on this. And then later that year, they met and reviewed his accomplishments. They said his mood was better. He was exercising regularly. He was making all of these personal and professional changes. And it's basically a big case study about how things shifted. So there's no conclusive answer to your question, Jason, but it does sound like with the right treatment that's very specific for you, there is hope. And I think that's an important element of this is My personal feeling right now is I align with a lot of the things that I'm reading. I want to present this to my doctor and then take it from there. There actually in the article is a link to where to find a therapist to to help with ADHD. And so I will link to that as well on Psychology Today. That's a starting point for you, Jason, and for anyone else listening who's Reflecting on this for themselves or others in your life. And it's really just about taking the next steps. I will say, though, as someone that struggles, sometimes booking an appointment is the hardest thing for me. It took me a very long time to make the up- upcoming appointment I have with my doctor. And I've noticed this with my students, my clients. Uh, simple steps are not always simple for the mind. So I want to say, lastly, to you, Jason, and to the listener, that one thing that can be very helpful is having some sort of accountability or somebody just to help you get this stuff done. And something as basic as asking a friend, a family member, a loved one, or just hiring an assistant, someone that can help you take those, quote, simple steps can make a world of a difference. So... That would be my suggestion. If, if finding a therapist is tough for you, is there somebody in your life right now that you can call upon to help you do that? And if not, can you hire somebody, whether it's a virtual assistant, an actual assistant, or can you go onto a website and do a short session with a therapist to start getting the momentum going? Fortunately, you don't have to go in person. But I'm not sure beyond that recommendation, Jason, like what somebody would do if they were really halted with this. I think sometimes it's hard just asking for help. But I found recently because since I struggle with taking, quote, easy steps, what I want to practice more is just asking for help. And I think the big conclusion I've had is that earlier is learning to effectively communicate with others so that they know how to help me and building the courage to articulate what I need.
1: Yeah, that's, that's well-spoken. And I think this, this journey is full of experiments and clarity, confusion, more clarity. I mean, this is, um, I don't find this easy, you know, I think maybe that's what prevents people from addressing it, perhaps is feeling overwhelmed by it. There are times I feel overwhelmed by it. And there are times where I feel like it's hard for me, you know, to your point, Whitney, I don't know about asking for help per se. It's more like, it's just more like expending the energy to keep trying to work with it, you know? And a lot of days I feel like totally exhausted by my mental health struggles. So I think it's important, you know, that we continue to try and find answers for ourselves, every single one of us.
0: I wanted to quickly say that in real time, I went on the Psychology Today therapist finder and it's really impressive you go to this first landing page which we're going to link to in our show notes at wellevator.com and you put in your zip code and it shows you therapists but on the sidebar Jason you can select your insurance which is magnificent because my insurance provider directory it feels a little hard to navigate and that makes it hard for me to narrow it down but in addition to this Jason You can narrow it down by your issues. So you can select ADHD. You can select anxiety. You can select depression, all on and on. You can also select sexuality. So if you would feel more comfortable seeing a gay or lesbian bisexual therapist, you can choose that. You can also narrow it down by gender, including non-binary, binary, binary, sorry, (laughs) non-binary, Unless maybe this is... Okay, wait. I might have been backwards. Maybe it's sexuality in terms of your sexuality. I'm not sure. It's a little confusing. Because then they have an age section. And it says toddler. So I'm assuming they don't mean toddler therapist. So this is a little, This confuses me. But I'm sure if you click around. But then they have types of therapy, Jason. So including cognitive behavioral therapy. EMDR. Mindfulness-based. And they have ethnicity served. Like, it's amazing. And it brings me comfort that psychology today has organized it. And, it. and honestly, it looks like an organization done by somebody that understands mental health because knowing that you can select all of these things to customize the type of therapy you get is really relieving and empowering to me. And that gives me hope and excitement.
1: Well, we're, we'll link to that directory in the show notes for this episode. Again, our website is com. That's W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com. Just click on the podcast section. It will take you to all of the wonderful resources we mentioned today, the books, the directory on psychology today that Whitney mentioned, the articles about ADHD. I actually want to take that article to my therapist on Tuesday, Whitney, because I think it's really important for me to discuss with him. And again we want to just reiterate to you, it's an ongoing journey and we're exploring all of the answers for ourselves in real time here on the podcast with you, dear listener. And as always, we just, we want to hear your feedback. You know, if you're on the journey and you're figuring this out too, any of your emails, any of your texts, any of your direct messages are held in strict confidence. And, you know, I think the big thing here, Whitney is, is we're all just learning from each other. And to go back to what you said at the very beginning Uh, Kicking this off, the willingness to know that we don't have all the answers, right? The willingness to know, hey, I wasn't right about this. Maybe I was totally misdiagnosed. Maybe maybe all these years I've had it wrong. It's kind of scary to say that, but maybe that's where solutions come in. Maybe that's where relief comes in, is by realizing that maybe we don't have all the answers and that there's always something new we can explore about ourselves. It's not easy necessarily. It's not light subject matter, but I think it's important we continue to explore and discuss this. So that being said, if you want to shoot us an email, dear listener, it's hello at WellEvator.com. You can shoot us a direct message on Instagram. We also have a growing YouTube channel where you can see the video version of this podcast. And as we mentioned earlier, for any of our newsletter subscribers or our wonderful patrons on Patreon, thank you for all of your wonderful energetic and financial support. You can support the podcast for as little as $2 a month. And in doing so, you get exclusive access to to our brand new podcast that launched a few weeks ago called this hits the spot full of great products foods services books things we're really excited about sharing in terms of resources it's fun it's light it's comedic it's slap happy there's a lot of music usually so again if you are a patron support us on patreon we'll put that patreon link in the show notes as well and as always thank you for getting uncomfortable with us thanks for rolling with the punches and being with us together on this journey. We'll catch you soon with another episode. Thanks for listening.
0: Thanks for listening and getting out of your comfort zone with us today. For show notes and more high-performance resources to help you thrive, go to WellEvator.com. That's
1: W-E-L-L-E-V-A-T-R.com.